you're going to be along with me on a ride through Scripture that is very, very detailed, a lot of information. I'm going to move very fast. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a little bit of a, a help that you're going to miss things that I'm going to say this morning. I'm going to say them and your, your mind is going to say, wow, that's really interesting. And then you're going to miss the next minute. That's the way most of us operate. My notes, almost exactly what I say, are always on the website. The sermons and video and audio are on the website. I'm going to encourage you, take advantage of those notes because there is a lot of information that I'm going to give you this morning. We're going to look a very, very, take a very deep look at some people this morning, and you're likely going to miss a lot of what I'm going to say this morning. So I'm going to encourage you, grab the Bible in front of you. If you didn't bring yours, there's one right in front of you. I preach out of the English Standard Version. If you're interested in that version, you want to talk to me about it. It's a very readable version. It's incredibly accurate. I like the version a lot. I like the New American. But we're preaching out of the ESV. That's the Pew Bible. So I'm going to encourage you, if you did not bring your Bible, please get that Bible out. Open up to Mark 5. Hang on, because we're about to go on a pretty fast ride that I think you're going to find pretty interesting. You know, when the Nazis were bombing London during the Blitz, a father was holding his small son by the hand and they ran from a building that had been struck and they were seeking shelter. And he dropped down, the father did, he dropped down into a shell hole that was right in front of the house and the lawn. And he held up his arms for his son to follow and terrified, yet hearing his father's voice telling him to jump, the boy replied, but daddy, I can't see you. The father who was looking up against the sky that was tinted red by the flames of the burning buildings, he called to the silhouette of his son, he says, but son, I can see you jump. Now that story is about to become kind of a a mindset that we go into this event in Mark chapter 5 with. Jesus is about to speak to two people. Whether it's verbal, whether it's through his actions, he's about to speak to them, jump. I can see you, so jump. Have faith. Would you trust me? We're about to look at two people who came to Jesus who were desperate. And friends, listen, you know, some of you know this experientially. Sometimes faith is born out of desperation. You know, that point where hope is almost completely gone. There can flicker into flame faith. And we start our story in chapter 5, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, what was, what was the other side? It's the western side of the Sea of Galilee, predominantly Jewish, some Gentiles. He came from the eastern side where He cast the demon out of that man into the herd of pigs, and the pigs rushed down those limestone, steep banks and cliffs right into the water and drowned. He came back from that because the people in that region, the Gerasene region, they didn't want anything to do with Jesus. Their hearts were soil that was nothing but rock. It rejected the Gospel. They didn't see the Son of God. They said, please leave us. They begged Him, please leave. We don't want you. You know, Jesus will 
at times leave when we ask Him. He will come back. But He will leave at times. And He left and He went back to the other side. And this is where the story picks up. They crossed again in the boat to the other side. A great crowd gathered about Him. Verse 21. And He was beside the sea, that freshwater lake, the Sea of Galilee. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name. You can call him either Jairus or Jairus. He goes by both. Linguists will tell you. And seeing him, he fell at his feet. Now, what does Jairus mean? What's his name mean? A lot of you probably, when I have met you for the first time and you've told me your name, a lot of you know I ask you, what's your name mean? That's important to me. I like knowing the meanings of names. I like knowing what parents were thinking when they named their children. Well, the name of Jairus means one whom Jehovah enlightens. One whom God opens his mind. And he was a ruler of the local synagogue. Now, the synagogue was a place where the Jews gathered to discuss, to hear, to fellowship around the Word of God, the Old Testament Scriptures. And synagogue rulers were basically administrators. Haven't you ever wondered, what did Jairus do? This story is pretty familiar. He's a synagogue ruler. What does a ruler do? He's an administrator. He's in charge of the service. He organized the synagogue school. Most most synagogues, or a lot of them, had schools where they, they were schools for the Jewish children. Jairus would have appointed those who were going to pray. He would have selected those who were going to unroll the scrolls and read from the Old Testament. He would have selected and invited those who were going to teach, expound on what was read from the Old Testament. Now here's what's interesting about Jairus. Here's what's interesting about the synagogue rulers. They were selected by the people. Jairus was more than likely well-respected, well-loved, devoted, godly, a man of mature leadership, by which and for which the people selected him. And he saw Jesus by the Sea of Galilee and with the humility of desperation, verse 22, he fell at his feet. Now friends, can you see me for a moment and listen to me for a moment when I tell you this? I don't think I, don't think I can overemphasize this. Jewish people didn't bow to anybody. They were God's chosen people. Yes, they were in captivity to Rome. They hated it. They despised the Roman people. They Yes, they had a king. His name was Herod. They hated him. He was half Jew, half Idumean. He's a traitor. Jewish people don't bow to anybody. So what's going on in Jairus' life that he would come, a ruler in the community in Capernaum, By the way, Luke infers there was only one synagogue in Capernaum. The synagogue, he says. So what would make, what would drive, what would move Jairus to come to Jesus and fall at his feet? Well, he says in verse 23, my little daughter is at the point of death. Mark tells us later in the story, Luke tells us earlier in his account, this little girl was 12 years old. And you know, friends, in our culture, when... Kids and teens long for freedom. They think of the magical age of 18. Well, not so with Jewish people. The age of 12 was their freedom mark. 
Now, this is shocking, but listen, this little girl, being 12 years old, 12 years old on the day of her birthday, the next day, listen, the next day she was considered a woman, an adult. Did you know that a Jewish girl on the day after her 12th birthday was marriageable? And we were surprised, some shocked. That was their culture. So here's this little girl that should have been enjoying the time of joy, the time of coming into adulthood, the time that where she was legally able to be married, what should have been a year of hope, a year of joy, was instead about to end in tragedy. Mark tells us in usual punctual great detail that she was at the point of death. You know that Greek word for point literally means to be at your last gasp. You ever been around somebody who's dying? I have. That time where they can't breathe very much anymore. Their breaths come very, very far spaced in between. This is where the little girl was. At her last gasp. And so the picture is forming for us. Ready? Let me sum it up. Here's Jairus, this doting, loving father who is at the side of his little precious daughter's bed who can't get enough oxygen. She's gasping for breath. They're slowing down. Her breathing rate is becoming slower. And all of a sudden, a servant, yes, he would have had servants. He would have been fairly well off as a ruler. A servant comes and says, Jairus, the teacher is back. And he hears the commotion, I'm sure, through the window of their home. And all of a sudden, a spark of hope begins to flood his heart and he runs out that door down to the lake. You know, the deepest grief that I have ever in my life walked beside is a parent's grief. It's an unrivaled pain. It is literally the subject of my own personal worst nightmares that one of my children would die. I've dreamed that. Haven't you dreamed that, parent? Can't you almost taste then? Come on, get into the story. Get into the shoes of Jairus. Even if you're a woman, even if you're a teen, try to get into the bitterness of these tears. He is helpless. He cannot save his dying little girl. Have you ever been so desperate in such crushing despair that you would do anything and a promise for help? You know, I'm sure, I'm sure Jairus had heard about how Jesus had raised that dead boy back to life and given her back to her, his widowed mother. That took place in the town of Nain before this event 20 miles away. I'm sure he heard about it. Nobody had been brought back to life since Elisha. And I'm sure Jairus had heard because it took place in Capernaum about that paralyzed man that was lowered down through the roof. It took place before this event and how Jesus gave him back all of his health and forgave him his sins. I'm sure he heard of it. And it was probably likely that Jairus was the, one of the synagogue rulers in the synagogue, when early on in Mark chapter 1, Jesus took that demon and threw him right out of that man in the middle of a synagogue service. See, Jesus had performed more miracles in Capernaum than anywhere. 
And so in desperation born faith, he had heard about this. He says to Jesus, verse 23, look at the text. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Friends, there's a few things this morning I want you to try to never lose out of your mind that I'm about to tell you. Here's the first one. Do you know that there was not ever anyone who came to Jesus in faith that was turned away? Not one. He never did, and He never does, even to today. His very being reacts to misery with compassion, and His power goes out, here's the second thing, in perfect timing. Well, Tim, I've been begging Jesus for help, and I've not received an answer yet. He'll never turn you away, but it's always in His perfect timing. And Jesus, who never lets the flickering candle of hope goes out, go out, He responded promptly to Jairus. He went with Him, Mark says in verse 24. If you climb inside the Greek grammar into the tenses, here's what it really says. He immediately went with Him. No hesitation. No deliberation. No thinking. No conferring with His disciples. Jairus asks, will you come and save my girl? And immediately He says, yes. Let's go. And as Jairus hurriedly ushered Jesus to the side of his daughter, all of a sudden into the picture is the second person in great need. In verse 24, a great crowd followed him and thronged about him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. You see, let's be mature. Men, ladies, teens, you know what? This is life. Let's talk about it. Let's not be shocked. Scripture doesn't hold anything back. A menstruating woman was classified by the Jews as a nida. But a woman who continued to bleed beyond her monthly cycle was called a zavah. A zavah was somebody that, this wasn't just a momentary monthly problem, this was an ongoing issue. And it wasn't a life-threatening physical condition. Listen, it was a life-destroying condition. Let me walk you back into the Old Testament Leviticus. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of, her di- of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of your, her impurity, she shall be unclean. And when the Old Testament speaks of being unclean, friends, listen, it doesn't mean she needed to take a shower. It means she's spiritually defiled in the eyes of God. She's spiritually defiled in the eyes of the community. A zavah was somebody that was continually unclean, spiritually defiled, and it meant this, that she could have no physical contact with anybody or she would render them unclean. Any object that she touched became unclean. If she touched a spoon and you came along and touched the spoon after her, you were now unclean. Listen, it was serious. It was serious to be spiritually unclean. You had to take a sacrifice which you had to purchase or take from your flocks and go to the priest 
where blood had to be spilled and sprinkled upon you and there was a period of time that you remained unclean until finally you were, you were declared clean again. But not a Zabah. A Zabah, there was no antidote. There was no cleanliness rite. There was no ceremony. She was perpetually unclean all the days of those 12 years. Friends, she was a walking transmission of defilement. She could not go to the temple. She could never go to a synagogue. She could not go to a market to buy food where she may jostle somebody. If she was unmarried, she would have been, have been restricted from marriage. She could not have been married. If she was married, her husband now had the right to divorce her. If she had children, they were taken away. She would be utterly unable to wipe their tears away, to bandage or clothe or wipe the blood off their scuffed knees. And you might be saying to yourself, how cruel can God be to declare her unclean? What does she do wrong? And now we're about to enter the language of the Gospel. So you've got to learn this morning, right? You come to church to learn. You come to church to, to study and to know how it applies to us. Listen, the point of the Levitical law was to convey the deadly, untreatable, serious nature of sin that violates the holiness of God. Sin creates a breach. And it creates a breach vertically between us and God. And it creates one horizontally between us and the community all around us. Sin is deadly. And all sin defiles and it separates and it ruins. And friends, listen. And all sin directs people to the grace and mercy of God. Why did they do all these sacrifices in the Old Testament? Why did all this blood have to flow? They were all meant to point to the One who would come and shed His blood for all of us. And for any of us who come to Jesus in faith, we could be made clean once and for all. And that person had come. And listen, friends, he was about to make this Zabah clean. He is the Son of God. So we've got two women here. Right? We've got one who is unclean for 12 years and one who after 12 years of living is about to die. And they both demonstrate the Gospel. Here we've got the woman with the unclean issue of blood. Listen, she's demonstrating what sin does in life. It defiles us. It creates a breach vertically. It creates a breach horizontally. But the consequences of living in sin, the ultimate result is that one day we're going to die and we're going to die apart from God. And this girl that's about to die is demonstrating death. The ultimate consequence of sin. Listen, do you read these stories in Mark without finding the Gospel? My, my main goal this summer, there's two of them. In this series, number one, that you love Jesus more at the end of the summer than you did at the beginning. But I have another goal. My goal is that you start reading the Gospels with the Gospel in mind. Because every story in Mark's about the Gospel. Every story in Mark turns the Gospel one more angle and gives you another look at it. And at the end of that Gospel, you're going to keep seeing Jesus. 
And in the front of that gospel, you're going to keep seeing humanity that's in need, whether it's a leper or a demoniac or a paralyzed man or a woman with a bleeding disorder or a 12-year-old girl about to die. They all demonstrate all of humanity that apart from Jesus Christ, we have no hope. We get to verse 26. And our heart lurches a little bit more for this woman. She had suffered under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but, wor- but rather grew worse. You know, the Jews had treatments for this. The Talmud had 11 treatments for a woman who was a Zabath. She would go to a doctor. She would pay money. The doctor would say, buy these materials and here's what I want you to do. And likely, here's the first thing that the doctors would have told her. He would have said this, I want you to go to a place where two ways meet, two alleys meet, and let her and hold a cup of wine in your right hand, and then let somebody come up behind you and frighten you and say, Arise from thy flux. That's treatment number one that she just paid money for. That would not have worked. Here's number two, likely. I want you to go take a barley corn, go to a farmer who has a mule, a female donkey rather, and I want him to fish out of the excrement of that donkey a barley corn. I want you to put it in a pouch and I want you to carry it. That's going to get rid of your bleeding. Treatment number two. It's not going to work. If that did work, I'm shocked. I'm frightened. I'm not digging through anything for barley corn. That's all I can tell you. Let me bleed. Here's number three. I want you to take an ostrich egg and burn it. And then take those ashes and put it in a linen bag in the summer. And if it's a winter, put it in a cotton bag. And wear it around your neck. And that's going to take care of this bleeding disorder. Three treatments that she paid money for that aren't going to work because the Jews, quite honestly, and nobody did until really only a hundred or so years ago, nobody understood the pathology of disease. They treated symptoms. But desperation will drive people to almost anything, and it left her broke, and it left her broken. And just like Jairus, who was sitting by the bedside of his little girl as she's breathing and gasping for air, Hope all of a sudden leaps into her heart when she sees Jesus walking in the midst of the crowd. Verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind Him in the crowd and touched His garment. For she said, If I touch even His garments, I will be made well. Now you've got to understand something. Here we go. I want you to picture this. Brian, are you wandering around our sanctuary? I love you, brother. I had a I had a professor one time in the middle of this of the uh, service would just get up and walk around and around. It was so entertaining. I, you're entertaining me. I love you, brother. Listen. Now that I've completely humiliated Brian, he'll never come back. Have you ever you ever been at a top? Maybe may, let me give you an example from my own life. One time I jumped off of a 35 foot tree branch into a creek, James River in Virginia. And I got up there and I'd already been in the water and I climbed up. My knees were shaking. Water's coming off my feet and I'm watching it go forever before it hits the water. And I am so scared. And all of a sudden in my mind, I had to 
psych myself up. I had to convince myself. I had to keep repeating to myself, you could do this, you could do this. Everybody else has jumped. You're going to be fine. Here's what's going on in that woman's mind. Mark peels back her thoughts and says, for she said, in the Greek tense, that means she's talking to herself over and over and over. She's convincing herself to do this bold, audacious, illegal act. And Jesus passes by and worming through the crowd, spreading spiritual defilement like a contagion. She reached out and touched what Luke says, the fringe of his garment. You see, Jewish men wore robes. They were like a four-cornered sheet. And off of each of those corners, they put tassels. You remember this, right? In Numbers, they were commanded to put t- sew tassels onto the corners of their garments. Why? Because the tassels reminded them to obey the law of God and not let sin reign in their hearts. So more than likely, Jesus, in conformity to the Old Testament, in custom to the men of his time, had a robe with these tassels on them. But you see, the Pharisees began to enlarge their tassels. They made them longer. They made them colorful. They made them them brighter so that they could appear more holy. I very much doubt Jesus ever did that. But more than likely, she ducks down below the headline of the crowd so that she cannot be noticed and probably, I'm guessing, probably reached down. It was the fringe, Luke says, maybe one of those tassels. But here's what happened. Immediately, the flow of blood dried up, verse 29, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. She's healed. Now listen, hold on to that. It's at this moment that she's healed. You're going to see something perplexing in a minute. She's healed. She's instantly, completely healed. And all of a sudden, the realization that, listen, a woman that's bleeding can feel it in her body. She feels the bleeding has stopped. She feels instantly made whole. But mingled with that realization is all of a sudden a terrifying feeling. Why? Because look what Jesus does. Verse 30, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately, immediately he turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Friends, if you thought God exercises his power in some numb, dispassionate way, you don't really yet understand God. Every act of his power He feels. Every miracle that He ever performs costs Him something. Pain and suffering in humanity, literally, the text says in the Gospels, it literally turns His stomach when He sees misery. And that love and that mercy, they mingle together. And I want you to get this imagery. They're standing like a horse, racehorse right at the gate, waiting for those gates to spring open where they immediately act. That's His mercy. That's His love. And when that power, when His power went out to that woman, He felt it because it's personal to Jesus. And he stops. He stops this whole crowd. You remember, don't forget Jairus. We're coming back to him. But he stops everything and he begins to look around. Why? Why does he do this? Have you ever wondered? I'm going to offer you two reasons at least. Do you remember what he said to that demoniac who wanted to go with him? He said, no, no. Verse 19 of chapter 5. Go home. 
Go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. You know what? I know, I know, I feel it in my heart. Jesus was stopping that woman from slinking away because he was saying, listen, I've given you my mercy. You've got to be my witness. There's too many Christians whom God has lavished with his love and rescued them from hell who stay below the line of the crowd and skulk away, never telling anyone. You will not do that, lady. And I'm going to call you out. Number one reason, I think. You will be my witness. I think there's another reason. You've got to get the wording in Luke. Luke says that he's looking around and here's the imagery. The Greek tense is really interesting. He's like looking at, at one person going, did you touch my garments? And you say, no. Did you touch my garments? No. Did you touch my garments? Right? One after another, all the crowd. And finally, here he comes, his holy gaze, his searching gaze to this woman. And here's what Mark says. When she saw, Luke says, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. Mark says she told him the whole truth. And she was terrified. She had just defiled everyone she touched. You know what could happen to her? Do you know what Jewish law would have done to her? If she appeared in a court, number one, she would have been fined. She could have been imprisoned. If she was found to have committed this crime deliberately, that she could have been put to death. Wouldn't you be terrified? Listen, I've just wormed my way through this audience, through this crowd, and I've defiled them, and I've defiled the rabbi by touching him. If they find out what I have done, I'm dead. Yet the Holy Son of God cannot be defiled by anything. Why is the Holy Son of God? Sin cannot stick. And His compassionate response to her shows us, I think, the other reason why He took the time to draw her out of hiding. Look at what verse 34 says. Jesus said to her, Daughter, friends, that's the only time He ever called a woman by that title, ever. What a tender title. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. He commends her faith. He says your faith has made you well. I I know you're secretive. I know that you slunk through that crowd to touch me. I know that you're afraid and that you're terrified. It doesn't matter. You still have faith. Listen, friends, Jesus doesn't require you to have perfect faith. Take that burden off of you. Do you have faith in any form? He will perfect it. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. This woman had imperfect but yet real faith. And it made her well. That's the Greek word sozo. Which means delivered and preserved from danger. It means saved. Daughter is a title of somebody that's come into the family of God, he wouldn't have called a pagan sinner daughter. Just like I shouldn't call you my brother and sister in Christ if you've not yet put your faith in Jesus. You're my friend, but you're my brother when you put your your faith in Jesus. Daughter means she put her faith in God. She was now brought into the family. Her father in heaven was Yahweh. 
And she was saved physically. It had dried up in her. Her body was made whole, but she was saved spiritually as well. How do you know? Because peace is the fruit of salvation. He says to her, go in peace. Listen, if he said that in the Old Testament, and it was written in Hebrew, it would have been shalom. You've all heard it. But in the New Testament, written in Greek, the word is irene, and it means to be in a state of well-being and happiness because you are now joined with God. See, Jesus declared this woman to now be in right standing with God. Can you imagine for 12 years, nobody gave her the time of the day. Everybody avoided her. She had no friends. She could not mingle with anybody. She hadn't felt the touch of a hug from anyone for 12 years. And all of a sudden, Jesus, the rabbi, the son of God, tells her, God loves you. You're his daughter now. Your faith. This is what your faith has done. And he says to her, be healed of your disease. Or if you've got the NIV, be freed from your suffering in verse 34. Listen, remember I told you when we looked at verse 29, hold on to that because something perplexing is coming. Listen, if, if verse 29 says that she was already healed of her disease, then why does Jesus say in verse 34, be healed of your disease? Doesn't he know? Doesn't he know that she's now whole, that her body is fixed? Well, it's kind of illuminating. It's kind of insightful to know that in verse 29, that word healed is not the same word in the Greek in verse 34. In verse 29, it meant to be restored to physical health. But here in verse 34, it's a whole other word. It means to become whole. Wholeness, all of her, body, mind, soul, heart, all of her. No more disease, no more ravages of sin, no more separation from God, no more separation from your community, no more bleeding, no more wondering where you'll be when you die. She was saved. She was whole. All of her. You know, there's something really, really interesting about the word disease. I did not know this until this week. It was so surprising. Let me put it this way. The word disease in the Greek is the same exact word for the whip and the scourge that laid open the back of Jesus Christ. It means whip. It means scourge. She would have been well taught that diseases were a scourge from God, a punishment for either her sins or her parents' sins, that this 12 years of bleeding was because she was such a wretched sinner. It was a scourge, a whip, that would lay open a person's soul and lead them, leave them to bleed out hope and trust. Yet the power of the Gospel in Isaiah 53.5 comes pouring down upon her and it says, but He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes we are healed. Friends, this is Gospel language. 
Jesus is saying, daughter, I've taken your defilement and I have plunged it beneath my own suffering and death that I am going to suffer soon and I have given you peace with me. You are no longer unclean. You are righteous. You are the daughter of my father. You are my sister. Live in the freedom of that truth. You know what it would have been like for her the next day to go to the market? Friends, listen, get into her shoes. What do you think would have happened the first time her elbow accidentally touched somebody else? Listen, 12 years of recoiling doesn't go away quickly. 12 years of seeing yourself as filled with shame and reproach doesn't go away like that. And Jesus was saying, you can, you can be freed of that scourge. My Father loves you. You are part of His family. You are His daughter. And you are reconnected back to community. So live in your freedom and go in peace. See, Mark has just taken us to the heights of passion, but friends, you better brace yourself. He's about to plunge us back down into the death valley of despair. Remember Jairus? Do you remember this little interlude, this pause? How do you think Jairus is feeling? He left his daughter barely able to breathe at her last gasp. Jesus, what are you doing? Today, that would be malpractice to a doctor. There would be a lawsuit leveled. To withhold help that you can give is illegal. But Tim Keller says this, God's grace rarely operates according to our schedule. And the worst fear of Jairus, the worst fear of every parent in this room comes true while he was still speaking. Verse 35, there came from the ruler's house, some who said, your daughter is dead. But Jesus is in the bottom of that shell hole and He is looking up to this little scared man who won't jump and He's saying, Jairus, I can see you. Jump. He says, do not fear only believe. Literally, it means stop fearing, Jairus. Keep on believing. Jairus, I see your flickering faith, but I see how this ends. So will you trust me and jump? And verse 38 says, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people wailing and wail, weeping and wailing loudly. See, you've got to understand, and it's still true today, that Jewish mourning was intentionally, purposefully vivid. It was purposefully intended to stress desolation and finality. It is full of pathos. It is full of emotion. It is intended to be that way. You go to funerals in our culture, everybody's quiet. Nobody speaks above a whisper. You can't imagine anything more diametrically opposed to our funerals than a cultural funeral in the Jewish land of Palestine. See, they would hire wailing women. And wailing women would be wailing out grief in high-pitched tones for two reasons, both to alert people to death and to spur the community to grieve. And the ones that loved this little girl, Jairus' wife, and soon Jairus would have, he would have been bending over her body, he would have been begging her silent lips to breathe. And they hired flute players. And their job was to play dissonant notes on the flute. Many, many people played the flute. 
And it portrayed the disruption that death causes. And mourners were instructed to tear their hair out and to tear their garments. In fact, listen, I'm not exaggerating. There were 39 regulations that govern how to tear your garments in a funeral. If you were a parent or a family member, you tore your garment along the left side over your heart, which was beating in grief. If you were a friend, you tore the garment on your right side. At the end of 30 days, your garment still had to be torn and then sewn up at the end of those 30 days. The the mourning period was over. And a mourner could not read the law of God during the mourning period. Why? Because reading the law of God was considered the greatest joy to the Jewish people. The only books of the Old Testament a mourner could read were Jeremiah, Lamentations, or Job. Books well connected in death and grief. And he couldn't eat anywhere but in his own house. And he could have no wine or no meat during the mourning period. And he had to eat sitting on the floor using a chair for a table. And it was custom for the Jews during the mourning period to eat eggs dipped in ashes and salt. And they would have taken all the water in Jairus' home and all the water in the three houses to his left and the three houses to his right. And they would have taken all that water and poured it out on the ground because the Jews believed that the angel of death procured death with a sword dipped into the water of the victim's home. And in this case, the death of a young person who had never married, part of the burial service likely included a form of a marriage service because it was the curse of all curses for a Jewish girl to die before she could be married. So they put a marriage ceremony into the middle of the funeral. And when the mourner would enter the synagogue, the people would all turn around and they would face him together and they would say, blessed is he that comforts the mourner. Friends, it's this atmosphere that Jesus says, Mark says, is commotion. It's this atmosphere that Jesus walks into with this flickering flame and the faith of Jairus. And he says to all the mourners and all the commotion, he says, why are you making a commotion and weeping? Wailers, why are you wailing? Flute players, why are you playing those dissonant notes? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Friends, she was dead in the physical sense. You know, those who are historical criticists like to strip the Bible of all the supernatural tell you that she never actually died. She went into a swoon or a coma. She was dead. The Jews knew when a person was dead. Well acquainted with it. But she was not dead in the sense of the power of Christ. She was asleep. And he took Peter and he took James and John, the very nucleus of the church that's about to spring out and go over the world. He took them into the parents and her parents into the bedroom and taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumai, which means in Aramaic, little girl, I say to you, arise. Talitha Kumai, Talitha means little lamb or little child. Little Lamb of God, I say to you, arise. And she rose and she lived. And Jairus held his little girl again. And the bell of the Gospel rings again. And the verses of Ephesians 2 begin to clang in our minds. God, 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You know, the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ extended beyond this little girl to every child of God. Friends, if you die in Christ... He will raise you with His hand and He will tell you to arise and walk in glory. Are you in this story? Are you the Zavah separated from God because you're still unclean in your sins? Are you in this story? Are you the person that if you were to die today that you would be separated from Christ for all eternity? Listen, this story is meant to evoke your passion, your emotions, and show you at the end of the Gospel lies Jesus Christ who's about to die for the Zavah, who's about to die for that little girl and raise them up in newness of life. It's the power of the Gospel. So let me ask one last question. Have you ever, like Jairus, have you ever, like this woman, fallen at the feet of Jesus and said, I need forgiveness. I need salvation. I need to be made whole. The scourge has been upon my soul and it's called sin and it's driving me to you, Jesus. And I believe you can forgive me. Have you ever done that? Would you close your eyes? I ask you to close your eyes just so that you can focus just between you and God. Would you think on that question, have you ever fallen at the feet of Jesus and put your trust in Him? Friends, all eternity hangs in the balance of that decision. And He is willing to raise you up and make you whole. He is willing to raise you up so that you can walk in glory. He is willing to give you a life that you have never had before. But you must throw yourself at His feet and ask Him to forgive you of your sins. If you need help in that, come see me or one of the leaders in the church, men or women, and we will help you make that decision. Lord, thank You for Mark. Thank you for his unique perspective in this story. Thank you for Jairus. Thank you for this woman. Thank you for their flickering faith that knew enough to go to Jesus for help. May we follow their example. And may we find ourselves at your feet. And may we find ourselves in glory with you for eternity. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.